Our first Old Testament reading comes from Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 1, 16-17 Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. The word of the Lord. We come to this topic. the the hard My hard part is is finding um, a passage, not because there's not many of them, but because there's so many of them in God's word that deals with these issues. And so this morning we're going to the prophets, and uh, we've we've um, listened to Jonah over the last few weeks, and now we're going to look at Micah and Isaiah a little bit and think about what God has to say about um, about justice. So let me pray before we do that. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have made you into our own image. We've not heeded your word and what you've told us specifically about yourself. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would help us um, to hear what you have to say to us from your word, what it is that you want from us, what you want us to be like and to look like, what it means to follow you and to walk humbly with you. Father, um, help us this morning um, as we hear these things. Help us not to just be hearers, but also, as James has told us, to be doers of your word. We pray that this would glorify you. It's what you created us for. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading a, a book the other day, and the author was talking about his father. His father had um, been a soldier, been a foot soldier in World War II. And he said when his father had come back home from the war, he, he didn't really, what he confessed is that he didn't really, during the time he was in war, know what he was really up against. I mean, how would he? Um, he was on the ground. He was uh, in the midst of lots of confusion. And he said that it, he really didn't understand what he was up against until years later when he began reading books that were written about the war. And he started seeing the big picture, picture of what was unfolding. He started reading about even some of the battles that he had, had fought in. But he said on the ground, everything was about basically the direct imperative that he was given next. You know, take a left. Go across that bridge. Hold your fire. Retreat. And the author of this book, as he talks about his father, he goes on to say this. How his deeds furthered some master plan, he knew not. 
There was for him no big picture. My father could not see the forest because he was a tree. He followed orders and tried to stay alive. And then he makes this connection. He says, those of us who are religious are like my father in some ways. We know that we are in a war and that our lot is to be good soldiers, to live according to the imperatives. I thought about that a lot this week because it's interesting to like look at our lives, to think about our lives in this way and to maybe look back on them, which we will do one day. We will look back on our lives from the scope of eternity and we'll have that vantage point and we'll confess that in the midst of them, we knew very little about what was going on. Let's just be honest. We knew very little about what God was doing next and why God was doing what he was doing and how things were playing out. We knew a little of the vastness of the big picture. We know little of that in the morning before our maybe first cup of coffee when we're trying to get our kids ready for school. We know very little about what's happening next. We know very little during our morning commute to work as we're dreading maybe a conversation that we have to have that day. We know very little about the bigger picture of what is actually taking place when maybe our checking account is running so low um, that we don't really know how we're going to fill it up again. We may not know what is going on. Do we even understand what we're up against? Do we know where to turn next? Um, What is my life about at this very moment? And here's the thing, it would be terrible to have a father who never told us what was expected of us. It would be terrible to have a father who never gave us any directions and never told us what what it was that actually pleased him. Maybe some of us have had earthly fathers that were like that. And it was difficult. And it was hard. And it was confusing. But for us to not only see, not be able to see the vastness of the overarching plan But to not have any direction in the midst of it would be really confusing. And thankfully, our Father's not like that. Our Heavenly Father has been really clear to us. And there's a sense in which we're frustrated sometimes because what we read in His Word is that His thoughts are really different than our thoughts. And they're far above our thoughts. And His ways, you know, there are certain things that are um, hidden from us. But there are things that have been revealed to us as well. I think Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. And we kind of want to be able to see the things that are hidden from us. But God keeps revealing things to us and saying, this is what I want you to do. This is what it looks like to follow after me. We want to know the mind of God, but God's word says, who knows the mind of our God? Who has been his counselor? But you know what we do know? We know his heart. We know what his heart is like. That it's it's been revealed to us plainly. It's been revealed to us in his word, but it's also been revealed to many of us in our experience. And out of his heart flows our direction. Where do I go next? What step do I take next? Out of his heart flows are imperatives. And this is why he says to us this morning, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And Isaiah says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Why is God talking to his people like this? Why is he being like... There's certain places when he stops and he's incredibly explicit. And in the prophets, he's often doing this. Why is he doing this now? It's because God's people were really forgetful. And they often would get out of alignment, almost like the wheels of our car. When, you know, you keep wanting to pull it back to the center and it's like like this. And this is, they, they were often getting out of alignment. It's not that they weren't doing like religious things that he asked them to do. They were. It's that they had missed his heart. They had thought that, well, if we just do these certain things, then these things will appease him. But God is saying that there's something that is really missing, and you've missed my heart. And so in these verses prior to both of these passages, God brings sort of an indictment against his people. That he... He essentially tells them that their religious observances are repugnant to him. He does this often in the prophets, that the things that you're doing right now, that your religious observance are repugnant to me. I don't want to hear your songs anymore. Sometimes God says, um, take your festivals away from my presence. Why? Because there's something that is dramatically missing from your lives. There's something that is lacking And sort of they've changed some behavior, but the thing that's notably absent in their lives show that their heart is out of alignment with God's heart. And so God does what he often does with his people. He draws them back in by recounting who they are and who he is. God does this all the time, that he he says to them, you know, he begins to just recount the ways in which he's loved them and the ways that he's shown them mercy. And he says, you know, Do you remember when you were slaves? Do you remember what it was like to feel oppressed? Do you remember when you were incredibly vulnerable and you were incredibly weak and you didn't have any power whatsoever? Do you remember what that was, was like? Do you recall that? And do you remember what I did for you? Do you remember the way that I, I, I came to you and I, and I brought you out of slavery? Do you remember the ways that I parted seas for you and I made bread rain down from heaven for you and, and water flow out of rocks in the deserts? Do you, do you remember all of that? And their response to this is what Anne started reading in Micah 6, the first few verses. Their response, it sounds really good in some ways. It sounds really good at first. But I don't really think this is the way that they meant it because basically I think what they're saying is, yeah, we remember, we remember all that. So what do you want from us? You hear what they're saying. Um, we already do a lot of religious stuff that you've asked us to do. So what else do you want us to do? Because their mind is, is still thinking in terms of payment, repayment. And so they start talking about what they could bring to him. Do you want more burnt offerings? We can do that. We can arrange that. What about calves a year old? Those are expensive, but we can get some. What about 
like rivers of oil. Do you want rivers of oil? We can do rivers of oil, 10,000 rams. What about, I mean, our firstborn? And it's sort of like the way that they're talking to God is sort of like a child who is talking to their parent and basically saying, just tell me what to do and I'll do it so you'll get off my back. Do you know how we've loved you and cared for you and pay for your education and we do all these things for you? Could you please, okay, just tell me what to do. Or like a husband who is kind of growing distant from his wife but just sort of is like, well, what do you want? And I'll do it. And plops down the flowers and and basically as to say, see, I love you. And it's like you know what the parent wants is the parent wants not just the, just the obedience. The parent wants the heart of the child. The parent wants the child to begin to look and act in a way that they think is good. The wife just doesn't want the obedience and the flowers. The wife wants the love of her husband. And in the same way, God says, what I want from you is not more burnt offerings. 10,000 rivers of oil and rams and all these things that you're mentioning, that you don't understand that the reason that I showed mercy to you in the first place is just because I wanted to. You cannot pay me back. What I want instead, what I require of you, those things that I asked you to do were meant to produce in you the heart that I want to see in you. They weren't meant to pay me back. I think that that's how we often view the Christian life too, though. Whoop, I've got to read the Bible. I've got to do more, I've got to do more things when those things that God calls us to do are actually to produce in us a heart that he wants to see. So what is it that I require of you? He basically is saying there's nothing that would please me more than to see myself in you. There's nothing that would please me more than to see myself in you. The, the same type of love that I showed to you when you were vulnerable, when you were a spiritual orphan, when you were defenseless, when you were powerless, the same tenderness and love and mercy and forgiveness I showed to you, what I require of you is that you show that too. It's not that complicated. But it's easy to forget. Tim Keller in his little book, Uh, that I commend to you called Generous Justice. He said to walk humbly with God, what Micah, what we read in Micah, to walk humbly with God is to know him intimately and to be attentive to what he desires and loves. To walk humbly with God is to be attentive, to intimately know him, to be attentive to what God desires and what God loves. And so Micah and Isaiah and much of the rest of Scripture, they tell us a few things about what God desires and loves. But here's the thing. We still have a comprehension in our own minds. We still think we understand what God desires and loves. And so this is why we have to stop. This is why God has to stop his people. Just be quiet with what you want to bring to me. And let me tell you once again, because I have told you before, here, O man, is what I require. And so let's think about, in the rest of our time we have together, just two of these things. Namely, that we see um, all throughout the Bible, but we see really explicitly in this passage, is justice. What What does God desire and what does God love? Justice and kindness. 
to do justice and to love kindness. And that justice, this idea that justice is at the heart of God, um, where do we get that? What do we mean when God says, when we say that God cares about justice? Think about Isaiah 30. He says, the Lord is a God of justice. Isaiah 61 says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I could go on and on and on. I won't. What is justice? It's not the easiest thing to define in some ways. In in these passages, we're told to do justice. We're told to seek justice. We're told to bring justice. And the most simple definition that I can give you this morning of justice is, is setting things right again. It's putting things right. To do justice is to make things right. It's the right exercise of of power. And because God loves justice and because he defines himself and his character and his heart as one who loves justice, Scripture also tells us that he hates injustice. That he hates injustice. And what is injustice? Well, it's the wrong exercise of power. It's the abuse of power. It's the, it's the strong preying upon the weak. And if you've read through the Bible, you could understand why this really makes God angry. Because everything about his character, when we see Jesus coming, is we see Jesus who comes from here go down to here. And so when he looks out on a group of people and they are using power in order to prey upon people who are weak or not to even love people who are weak, And God says, your heart is out of alignment with me. It doesn't look, you you may be doing like things that look really good. You may be very moral. You may look very religious. But he's saying that there's something that is lacking that is essential to my being and my character. Why would God feel that way? I mean, if you just think about the scope of scripture, we start at the beginning where God makes this world for his own glory. And in it is is perfect harmony. It operates the way that God has created it to operate. And he puts human beings in the middle of it. And what are those human beings there to do? They're made in the image of God. They're there to reflect his glory. They walk with him in the cool of the day. There's no guilt. There's no shame. But their rebellion against him is essentially saying... We don't want you to be God anymore. We want to be God. We want to be in control. And what we find is that 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 sends this, basically, its web of brokenness goes throughout all of the world. And so, basically, those who are meant to reflect God's glory begin to use any means they can in order to get glory for themselves. And when when we do that, which is is one of the heart of, it's, it's at the heart of sin, It necessarily means we step on people as we do that. We keep pushing people down so that we can go higher. And this is why, as a result, God continually identifies himself in Scripture as a defender of those who are socially weak. God doesn't, this isn't God saying, I don't love people who have money. This is God saying, though, specifically, I'm a defender of those who socially are vulnerable, who socially are weak. He calls himself the father of the fatherless. In fact, there's all through scripture, there's this repeated um, quartet of those that God tells us to care for. They're the widow, 
the fatherless. Why does it say fatherless? That might bother some of us. If we're talking about people, if we're talking about orphans, fatherless in that day, if there was, even if there was a mother but there was no father, they would have been considered an orphan. Because women had such weak social status that many of them could not provide in the way that they needed to. They were defenseless in a way. And so the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the, the traveler, the person who's away from home is vulnerable, who doesn't have the normal things that they would have around them to, to guard them and protect them, and the poor. You can see all those right in a row if you go to, to Zechariah um, 9 through 10. But you back back up to Deuteronomy and you hear God. This was kind of the intention for his people from the beginning. Think about um, Deuteronomy 24. He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees... You shall not go over them again. I may have missed an olive. No, he says, leave it. It shall be for the sojourner and for the fatherless and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of the vineyard, you shall not strip it all afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, for the widow. Why? You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. It's remembering again who you are where you came from, why the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, and the poor, because these are the ones who are most likely to bear the brunt of injustice, and God hates injustice. Why are they most likely to bear the brunt of injustice? Because they have next to no power. And if they have next to no power, then they're defenseless against those who might use their power to harm them or take advantage of them. And so to walk humbly with God, first and foremost, is to do justice, is to seek justice, is to bring justice to the fatherless. So basically God is saying, and he says this again and again, especially in the prophets, is is that if you simply practice religion but you have no regard for those around you who are vulnerable, he says, then your religion is worthless. It's not worthless because God is saying, if you just do this one more thing, I don't want rivers of oil. I just want you to be nice, all right? No, he's saying it's not producing in you what it's supposed to produce in the first place. James tells us the same thing. We read it this morning. Don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers. And then he says, well, what does it look like to do? And he says, well, this is pure religion. To care for these that are vulnerable. That are subject to injustice. And if you don't believe James, then what about his brother? Jesus. If you follow in through the Gospels, you see that over and over again, we're so accustomed to this, we're so used to this, that it, it doesn't astound us like it should, that Jesus is continually drawn to people who are socially weak, and socially outcast. It doesn't astound us. It surely astounded the the, the religious in his own day. Jesus says, you know, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink and I was was hungry and you you fed me. I I was in prison and you visited me. 
And those he's speaking to say, you know, what, well, when do we do those things, Lord? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We can't pass over that, right? Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, it's like you were doing it to me. So what is the fuel for a heart that cares about justice in the way that God does? I think it's kindness. I mean, kindness is the fuel. Like, these aren't, it's not to do justice and to love kindness are two separate things. It's in order to seek justice, you must love kindness. Now, if you think that um, that word sounds a little fluffy or a little light, to love kindness, it's the, the Hebrew word that's used here is the word hesed. And hesed is the word that's used to describe the way that God loves his own people, the way he cares for his own people. To do justice requires a heart that mirrors God's heart. And so the question is, how do we generate in our own hearts that type of kindness that fuels a heart that actually wants to make ourselves go out of our own ways. You know, I mean, it's so easy to stay in my own path. Why would I ever want to deviate from my own path in order to love and protect and to do good for those who can't protect themselves? Why would I want to do that? How do we become people who love kindness? And I think it begins with firing our hearts with the warmth of the gospel. This is why we do this every week at Grace and Peace. We don't talk about the gospel over and over again just so that we can leave and go, isn't that nice? Isn't it wonderful that God would dare to love somebody like me and now that I'm forgiven? That we fire our hearts with the warmth of the gospel. We meditate on it over and over again. We stand in awe of the fact that Christ could possibly be kind to me because what we want is that our hearts be transformed so they look like God's. It's the same way that God recounts his kindness to Israel. We must continually recount his kindness to us in Jesus. It's beyond kindness. It's a love that we sometimes sing that will never let us go. It's a love that has adopted us into his family, even though we were foreigners and we were sojourners and we were vulnerable and we were enemies even, it says. That the fuel is kindness. To love kindness is to develop empathy. This isn't easy for us. (laughs) To develop empathy. Empathy is like a muscle that you have to exercise, right? Empathy is, it, it requires imagination. It's seeing yourself in somebody else's place. It's something that, like, in my own life recently, I've been, like, very consciously trying to exercise the muscle of empathy. I wonder what it's like to walk in their shoes, what it's like to be them. I think this is where kindness starts. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in 13.3, he says, he's talking to the, towards the end of this letter, he's giving instructions to the body of Christ. And he says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
You see, this is where I think this type of loving kindness begins. It begins with identifying what it might be like for someone else to be in that spot. And what that means, and Stephanie alluded to this already this morning, is to love kindness is to be acquainted with sorrow. It's got to mean that we are people who don't run away from what is hard and hurtful and painful and not very fun to look at. I was reminded of a, a poem this week by a woman named Naomi Shihab Nye. And she says this, it's called kindness, and she says, Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak till it, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Is it any wonder that Jesus, that Jesus who is incarnated kindness was also a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with much grief? To love kindness is to push into sorrow, not to flee away from it. It's to identify with it, to put it on to bear another's burdens, which necessitates pain. This is the heart of kindness because it is the heart of God's love for us, and we see it displayed in Christ. So what does this mean for us, and what do we do with it? Let me just leave you with two things. I think the first thing that this means um, for us, especially in light of these passages where God has to come back and remind his people again and again that what this means for us is that we have to wake up and we have to stay awake. We have to wake up and we have to stay awake. You need to be awake to do justice and love mercy. There are so many things that lull us to sleep. There are things all around us that just simply say, don't pay attention, look the other way, your life is hard enough as it is, don't invite any more sorrow or any more pain or any more burden or any more hurt into your life. It'll just overwhelm you, it's just not the time or the place. Does that sound familiar? Is that a refrain that goes through anybody else's head? It goes through mine. To stay awake and to be attentive means there must be times when you are not distracted and there must be times when you are quiet and when you're still. We don't have a lot of those times in our life. It's easiest to be lulled to sleep if you're, if, you're never, if you're never still. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's not. Because otherwise, we're going to distract ourselves, we're going to look at something else, we're going to turn our attention away. But the grace of the gospel, it inevitably leads us to love for the vulnerable. Because the grace of the gospel, by definition, is love for the vulnerable. And sometimes it just needs to be woken up inside of us. Sometimes we need to see an image of 401 representatives of God's family on the wall. So we wake up and we stay awake. But lastly... We don't succumb to the attitude that says, what could we possibly do? You know that attitude that says, "What? I mean, what difference do I make? What difference does our church make? And I would say this, if we were to walk humbly with God, remember that you are walking humbly with God. (laughs) With God. 
Just because we can't single-handedly dismantle the myriad of injustices that we see in our world doesn't mean that the, that the result should be that we don't do anything or that we don't have a role. Some of us um, are incredibly busy in our lives, and legitimately so. You know who are the busiest people I know? Mothers with young children. They're the busiest people I know. What would it look like? Here's the question that I would have for us. What would it look like for me to show kindness to someone who is showing kindness to someone else in a way that I can't? I'll say that again. What would it look like? You might go, I can't do a whole lot. What would it look like for me to show kindness to someone who is showing kindness to someone else in a way that I can't? What would it look like for me to just visit somebody? To bring a meal, to offer maybe to babysit somebody who is helping maybe a vulnerable child? Don't succumb to the faithless, despairing attitude that says, what could I possibly do? Because James tells us that faith without works is dead. And that pure religion is this, for caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Don't underestimate what just a little bit of initiative can do when we humbly walk with God. I'll leave you with a quick example of that that I was struck with this week. I was reading in a book about the fact from the late 1800s until the middle of the last century, there was almost 5,000 lynchings in our country. And many of those lynchings were of African-American men, and many of the motivations for those lynchings were because those men... um, might have said or spoken something to a white woman that was not taken to very kindly. And so instead of going through a process, um, those men were often ripped from their homes or their stores or from jails and drugged through the streets, and the mob did with them what they wanted to do with them. There was a a white woman, a church-going woman uh, named Jessie Daniel Ames. I'd never heard of her before. You probably haven't either. And she was really bothered by this. And she was really bothered by the fact that maybe one day somebody would say something to her and that might actually get somebody killed. And so she started um, this organization called the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. It's got a catchy name, right? The ASWPL. And she thought the most effective voice against lynching could come from one who it was intended to benefit. Well, maybe if the white women in the churches would speak up, maybe some of this would die down. And she recruited 12 other women in different denominations across the South, and they started chapters that eventually had over 40,000 members. And those women petitioned elected officials to pass laws against lynching. They, they spread literature. They exposed the names of officers who failed to uphold the law. And in some instances, they, they confronted physically mobs themselves. Did they stop the practice? No, not by themselves, not by a long shot. But did they make a difference? Yeah, they did. We may not know all the details of the big picture, but we do know the heart of God. He's shown you, O man. He's shown us what he does require of us. He's shown us his heart, 
And the question is, are we in line with it? Is there evidence of that in our own lives? Those of us who have been shown kindness and mercy and grace by Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, those are hard questions for us. And the only reason we ask them this morning is because we know as we come to this table what the cost is of your love for us. We know that you know what it is like to, to give your son because inexplicably you care for us and you want us to be a part of your family. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to allow us and, and even force us to ask ourselves hard questions about what our life um, is really about, what it means um, that we are part of your family because of what you've done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.